Hello and welcome back to Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I am seated perilously close to my co-host Damien Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hello. This month we are taking note of the exits as we look back at Peter Weir's 1993 bleak psychological drama, Fearless. This is it. This is the moment of your death. I'm not afraid. I have no fear. We're going to start by discussing the film's narrative, themes and technique. Then we'll discuss its release and reassessment and end by revealing the film for next month's show, which we hope you'll also join us for. In the spring of 1991, a writer named Rafael Iglesias sent a screenplay he'd written, adapted from his own soon-to-be-published novel Fearless, to husband and wife producing team Mark Rosenberg and Paula Weinstein, who'd just launched their own production company at Warner Brothers. Impressed, Rosenberg approached acclaimed director Peter Weir, whose previous films include Picnic at Hanging Rock and Witness. Weir, as it happened was coming off a 12-month vacation and looking for what filmmakers call a broken script, a term used to describe a raw screenplay that hadn't yet been retooled by Hollywood. Immediately struck by the thematic content and tonal quality of this bold and unusual story, Weir flew to New York to meet Iglesias. Fearless was actually inspired by the author's own fear of flying. He'd always been drawn to air disaster specials and news reports. Of particular interest was the crash landing of United Airlines Flight 232, which made headlines in July of 1989. At 37,000 feet, the aircraft went into engine failure mid-air, and for 44 minutes, the passengers on board braced themselves for impact as the captain radioed into air traffic control for assistance. Video of the emergency landing alongside a cornfield in Idaho in which 111 people were killed was broadcast on networks around the world. To prepare for the film, Peter Weir spoke to some of the survivors from that crash, He changed the setting of the novel from New York to San Francisco. The six-week shoot began in September of 1992, with the opening scenes being shot in Bakersfield, California. Production wrapped in December of that year. Weir offered Mel Gibson the lead, but Mel was about to direct his first movie, The Man Without a Face, and had to turn it down. So Weir went against studio advice and cast Jeff Bridges as Max, an architect who walks away from a plane crash physically unscathed, but with a panic disorder that makes him believe he's invulnerable. Losing all interest in his pre-crash life, including his wife and son, Max forms a friendship with fellow crash survivor Carla, who is also in crisis, because she can't forgive herself for the death of her infant son on board. Alienated from those around them, who want to turn their trauma into either a money spinner or a group hug, Max and Carla lean briefly upon one another, as they struggle to re-engage with the world. You can't do it! You want to kill me, but you can't! Damien, what did you think of Fearless? Always uh, liked the movie. It's, I think it, the first time I saw it, which was many years ago, it was pretty difficult to uh, understand exactly how much I liked it. Uh, it's a very different film than most films out there, but I've come to appreciate it a lot more over the years. I remember when I was at uh, university doing film studies that one of my lecturers walked in and he said, today I'm going to show you the best film ever made. And he put on Fearless. And I don't agree that it's the best film ever made. Obviously, I'm sure not many people do. But it was really interesting that someone had taken this movie, which got pretty good critical reception, but hardly any box office, and had largely been forgotten, even by that time, which was 15 years ago, but it had largely been forgotten and he was able to walk in and say, oh, it's the best film ever made. And it kind of made me look at it in a different way. Mm. But I think the film is uh, really beautifully shot. It's very well acted, especially from Jeff Bridges. And there's a lot of really great things in the movie. It's an enjoyable movie to watch for me. I do enjoy watching it. It's interesting that um, Peter Weir directed it, who's an Australian. Obviously, we're Australian. Um, But I feel like the driving force, having done the research for this podcast, was Raphael Iglesias, the writer. I feel like he was the driving force behind the project. Mm. Cameron, what did you think? I liked it. I This is the first time I had uh, seen the film in, in preparation for the podcast. Um, I think I'm going to need to watch it a lot more to get the scope of 
some of the ideas present in the film. Um, but yeah, for, for the most part, I thought it was a very, very well-made film with great performances and a really interesting tone. I remember reading Peter Weir actually said, I think it takes 24 hours before this movie really sinks in. You know, I hope those that write about the film see it at least twice because it's there's too much in it just mm. to dash off a review. Uh, interesting that in your introduction you said about Mel Gibson, who Weir had worked with on Gallipoli and the Year of Living Dangerously. And he was he couldn't do it because he was uh, doing his own movie. But I did read that he was considering Jeff Bridges for the lead in The Man Without a Face. So it's interesting that he shot that and he actually put himself in the lead role. And Peter Weir got Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Hmm. I've not seen The Man Without a Face. No, I've never seen him either. What did you think of Weir's dispassionate eye as he guides us through the aftermath of the crash in that opening sequence? I love that the movie starts after the crash. The shot of Bridges walking through the cornfields with the baby and the young boy is really, really a fascinating shot. It's beautiful cinematography. And I think the dispassionate way he shot the crash reflects Jeff Bridges' character, so it instantly puts you in his head. I think it's a kind of accurate emotional tone to use to set up the rest of the movie. And later on in the movie, there's a scene where Isabella Rossellini is watching news footage of the crash, and I think she realises the severity of the situation that he's been in. But those for her are just, apart from experiencing this with her husband because he's going through something at the time, but those are just pictures on a news broadcast, which is how most people see crashes. Yeah. So there is a difference between our expectations of what a crash is going to look like because those are the images that we're used to and the reality. And I don't think Peter Weir presents either of them. He presents a kind of morphed version of reality through Jeff Bridges' eye. The camera's eye is dispassionate. Everything that's going on in the scene is hysterical. The performances, the production design, it's terrifying. Except Jeff Bridges, who's walking through and he very unemotionally hands over a baby and a little boy who pleads to stay with him. So Jeff Bridges definitely isn't emotional. He's already in this state that he's going to spend most of the movie in. Yeah, and we start off in the cornfield, and at that point, in that when we see that, there's no reason to think that he's been in a plane crash. No. It's just a man walking through a cornfield with a baby and a, and a boy, and then later we hear Rosie Perez screaming, my baby, my baby, and he's got a baby. So there's so... Mm. It does, it's not her baby, though. No. So there's so many things that are happening in the scene that are kind of like, wait, what is happening? Mm. It's like a, a really good rule in filmmaking to drop the audience in an unfamiliar territory straight off the bat. Quite difficult to do this without alienating the audience on some level. He achieves it by having Jeff Bridges as, th- as the through line like through the scene we know his face as an audience and we're somewhat like subliminally comforted by it i think it's also pretty close to a subjective scene but it does move to some objective moments as well i like the fact that we move through the crash site for the most part with max and we feel uneasy but we know he does too so we're not completely out of the loop i also think the sound design in the scene is mesmerizing not his father he was traveling alone go with him now no please okay. i want to be with you please thank you please I, i've got to find the mother now go, come on. Come with me. It creates a dreamlike kind of atmosphere and it's familiar to all of us who have ever experienced some form of shock. Yeah. I think it's a pretty bold move to do it as well and I think it's borderline dispassionate in terms of the camera but at no point did I find it gratuitous. Like you get frames of burnt bodies but it never holds on them. Yeah. The covers are pulled over them really before you get a chance to really process them but then they linger in your head afterwards. And I think the moment when Carla is grabbing at the rescuer's hair is, like, so human and terrifying. She's um, extraordinary in this film. Yeah, yeah. And I think the crash site is really well staged as well. Peter Weir went to a lot of great lengths to stage that crash scene. I, I think I read it was, like, $2 million. I think it was production designer John Stoddart. They had, like, 140 people from the area hired as extras. They had fire crews on standby. There was obviously a lot of planning that went into it because it really opens with all these moving tracking shots. Yeah. And uh, it creates this sense of energy to start off the movie. Yeah. Even though you haven't seen this crash. The choice to use um, quite long lenses in some of those scenes, especially when you have the plane at the back almost like a curtain behind what's going on and then the, the fire and stuff like that, it all feels quite flat as well so you don't have a massive sense of distance in some of those shots mm. um which is really an interesting thing like you you don't get the distance of how things are it's a little bit disorienting who, who do you think max is after this crash and did it bother you that we didn't get a before to compare i feel like 
Max is given a, a dose of perspective he wasn't sort of aware that he needed from the crash. And I think the the fragility of of life in general hit him so hard that it sort of changed his makeup. In and at some point, it feels like a weird version of Yes Man. <laughs> uh, in a way, I think he's more defined by action because of the transition. Like, so the perspective he's gained, you might think, would round out his personality a little bit more. But for me, living in the moment kind of strips him of his character. Mm. And being a man of action and being proactive, I guess, are character traits. But um, but like him being so cold and upfront and only telling the truth, kind of strips him of his humanity. Yeah, I don't think the film suffers either, but it does seem to be a problem at the time, the release of the movie, that there was that was talked about quite a bit. Yeah, Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote it in his review, which I'll get to a bit, bit later. Um, I didn't find it a problem, and I don't think that noting the differences between the pre-crash Max and the Max we see in Fearless would have made much of a difference to how we read the film. Um, certainly... Throughout the movie, even from the start, we know that he's not acting normal. It's mentioned plenty of times, and you see his wife and his uh, boy's reaction to the way that he's acting. So clearly something different here about the Max that was before the crash. Yeah. Um, to compare it to somebody acting normally would be to compare it to somebody just being a normal person, who's pretty much everybody that everybody knows outside of this movie. So you know what normal acting well, the way a person normally acts and the way that Max acts are very different. Yeah. So I don't think it would have helped too much to show Max before the crash. Plus, it would have taken away from this opening scene that we've just been through as well. But what do you think has actually happened to Max? Max is uh, clearly affected by this crash. He's in shock. See, for me, I think what happens when, when the plane starts to crash which is obviously this character's biggest fear. Like, you know, you get the impression that he's a very reasoned man, that he, he doesn't take risks often. Uh, and I think once those engines fail and he has those minutes before impact, I think his brain disables his fear. Because, yeah. you know, our brains are outfitted to protect us when something becomes too overwhelming. Mm. So I think, you know, if you if you live in the now, if you live in the sensual world and you taste the strawberry and you, you know, feel great having sex and you, you, you touch colour and, and, you know, you live in that way, well, that's wonderful. And you feel like you're, you're suddenly closer to life. But at the same time, that doesn't allow for continuity. I mean, a goldfish lives in the sensual world. And, and the continuity is, is his family, is the things he cares about, his responsibilities. You can't really have those if you're going to live fearlessly. Mm. If we love, we fear. So I think that's what happens to Max. I think in that moment, no, you're not scared. You're going to live in the moment beat by beat, minute by minute, and nothing can touch you anymore because you're just living for the moment. Mm. Nothing else matters. And I think like sometimes like his embracing of the now could possibly feel alien to those uh, viewers who haven't had any one of those experiences. And again, that may have affected you know, box yeah. office. Now, you can you tell enough by well, like yeah, yeah. but the shots of his friend next to him using the laptop. You know that he's in a corporate world. You get references to he was very successful, he had money and stuff like that. You don't need to see those scenes. Like what's like we've all seen that film and it's a much, much worse film. There's um actually the he drives to Los Angeles, yeah. And um there's the scene where he stops by his old friend Allison's house and so the Museum of Modern Art did a retrospective and did some screening of the movie in New York and uh, they said that this is really where you get a glimpse of what Max was like and they had this great quote that I have to read out said one of the few moments of levity and fearless is Max's reunion with Alison perhaps this scene is meant to comment on a long long ago period in his life that when getting the blood flowing meant an uncomplicated date with a down-to-earth girl out in the countryside rather than a life-altering jumbo jet crash. That scene does feel quite small. It feels, looking back at the movie, it feels a little bit out of place. Yes, I yeah. mean, it's there to set up some of the exposition about the strawberry that he can now have this and not die. Uh, and just disappearing and not contacting his family. Yeah, that. I mean, it, I found it weird that at the start of this movie he drives to Los Angeles Then he's so willing to go back to San Francisco because I hadn't remembered that from the last time that I saw it. But it does feel kind of like just a little aside. Oh, here he goes down to San, uh, down to Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah, and yet ultimately, once he returns to San Francisco, we realise how important it really is because we see that he's got this very connected family who he's not bothered to contact. Yeah, I love the performance of his friend in that 
scene when he goes back and speaks to her and has that, mm. that, that thing. I think it's, she could have so easily been window dressing and she's such an interesting character. Like she speaks so um, flippantly about her family. I'm fat. I haven't written a play in years. Kimmy, my oldest, has a learning disability. Thanks to family therapy, I've learned to love him for what he is, not my fantasy of what he should be. The middle two, James and Sarah, resent the extra attention Timmy got, so they fuck up in school to punish him. They're working that out in their support group for siblings of the learning disabled. And my youngest, my beautiful baby, Ellen, who's going to be this great ballerina, destroyed her ankle playing basketball with her brothers. As for Bill, he's screwing a student. <laughs> Pathetic. Not even tragic. She gives him the impression that, like, if you want to have sex with me, I will probably do it. And in the book, they do have sex ah. after that scene. That's in- yeah, that's interesting. I'll, yeah, I was wondering if that was a, an omission. Like, I'll, I was wondering if there would be that scene. I'm glad yeah. it was, because I don't think the movie needs to have any kind of sexual activity in it. Reading the novel, we'll talk about this later, mm. but there were so many instances where if you'd pulled over everything that was in the novel, the movie would have started to feel very crowded. I think there were some very intelligent omissions made. Yeah. And that's one of them. And also, you know, you portray something on screen in a two-hour movie like that, then it becomes a far greater issue for the movie than it ever would be for the book. Because the book is told with more information, more detail, and so you're allowed to get away with those kinds of things. But putting it in a movie and having even take up 30 seconds of time means that, oh, okay, we've given it time, it must be important. Especially for a movie like Fearless or by a director like Peter Weir. Did you guys read about how Jeff Bridges um, talked to Gary Busey mm. to get because um, he'd did. been in a in a really bad motorbike accident, had come very close to death, and Which actually that... explains a lot about Gary Busey. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how strange he was before the accident. He is yeah off the wall. That man. He's so much fun to watch. He he's, is. He's like a walking piece of sandpaper. And for any of our um, listeners, if you have a Twitter account, please follow Gary Busey on Twitter. His stream of consciousness tweets that he sends out are the funniest things you will ever read. <laughs> Is he still acting, Gary Busey? I think his life's a performance. As I was reading the book, there was one beautiful part. Um, whenever, you know, Max has three episodes in the film where he walks through the traffic, where he's on the, the window ledge, and then, of course, the car crash scene, they're all preceded by a panic attack. And in the novel... During one of these episodes, um, Iglesias writes that Max is running to catch up with Fearless Max. And I thought, ah, I really liked that. It kind of illuminated what was happening to him in those moments. Like he could suddenly feel himself slinking back to being human, alive, loving, fearful. And no, 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 I'm not ready for that. Run, run, run. And then put myself in a situation where I could die and feel the the rush of that and then go back to living in this altered state of consciousness. There were a few moments in the film where I thought it was such a great move to just divert from what could have been a very boring scene. Like in that scene where he's talking to the lawyer and the wife of the uh, of his friend that's dead and stuff, and he does do that, and he just runs. I'm like, thank fuck, because if that scene kept going for a long long period of time, it just would have been yeah, movie dialogue. Yeah, and and boring, and the fact that he just and he does that then, and he does that really loud like yelling noise to the lawyer <laughs> in the car. To be honest with you, I wasn't thinking about you. I was thinking about Mrs. Gordon. She doesn't come from a rich family. Now she's a widow with two young children. What? 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 What's wrong? I don't want to tell any lies. All right. Next time, just say no. We have to talk a bit about the lawyer and the therapist, but uh, first of all, I have to ask you guys what you thought of San Francisco and Alan Davu's photography. I hope I've said his name right. Um, I just uh, mostly wrote about how we are came about shooting the way that he did. He didn't want the postcard photography that you usually see with San Francisco. He didn't want uh, the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Area and, uh, you know, the High Ashbury, which had been in the 70s with all the hippie films and the, uh, I guess, sexual revolution. And now there's the Castro District. So there's all these picture postcard areas of San Francisco that he didn't want. And he didn't want his film to portray that. So he said he chose to face the other direction and look inwards and look... Away from the water. Yeah. So instead of shooting it low down, looking up, 
he shot higher, looking down. He said that uh, it was a city of mystery and a fascinating architecture. He selected locations which he thought had not been used before because he wanted to see it the way that Max would see it, which was freshly, he said. Not the high-rises, but the details that you don't see because you don't look up much, and I thought Max would be looking up and noting these things. Then through Carla, I found myself filming lots of churches and church architecture, spires and the like. I honestly think the film is very drab. I think it's quite ugly to look at for the most part. I think that the majority of the film is really well framed, except with the exception of a few scenes. I think the most notable for me was the group therapy scene. There are singles of John Totoro's Perlman character where he's just floating in the frame in a really odd way, and I think the attention is diverted from, from, uh, away from him unnaturally, and I think those scenes could be staged a lot better. I think San Francisco looked quite cold in the film, which is different from how it's portrayed in many films, like examples being you know, Bullet, Zodiac, um, even Body Snatchers. Davio. Davio. Yeah, whatever. Um, is obviously a hugely talented DP and he's worked on some incredible films, like when you have E.T., Empire of the Sun, Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, I, I think it's quite a drab-looking film and I think it ages it very quickly. Do you think, because uh, when the film was shot in 1992, the world was going through this grunge phase as well and denim was such a feature then and yeah, denim's yeah. usually blue and I wonder if the colours were taken a little bit, just subconsciously even, some kind of inspiration. You wouldn't think a director would like Peter Weir would think of something like that. Yeah. There's a bit of a depressing 90s quality to That's... a lot of the scenes. Davier said that um, he was really excited to be using zoom lenses right. in this movie because he said most directors shy away from them. Just on this, completely unrelated. But I found a website while I was doing research of Jeff Bridges' photography during his career. He's yeah. done photography in all of his movies yeah. and they're really amazing, really ultra-widescreen. Yeah, like a lot of panorama stuff. Yeah, well, panorama right? photos that he's taken on the sets of all of his movies and there's a couple of them for Fearless. So we might put those in the show notes. That's a good idea. What did you guys think of uh, Stephen Brillstein, mm-hmm. the lawyer, and Dr. Perlman, the uh, PTSD psychiatrist? What role do you think they play in Max's journey and how are they similar? I think both of them represent capitalism and corporate America um, in their own way. I think Dr. Perlman seems a lot more genuine in his concern for Max, but at the end of the day, he still does work for the airline. So there is still a vested interest there. In having them healed and non-compensable. Very true. But And and I think... um, and Bruce is it Bruce Stein or Steen? Bruce Steen, I think. Um, on the other hand, is much more of a worm. And to be honest, I think Tom Hulse uh, plays him a little bit more like a cartoon. I think it's um, I don't particularly like either character. Obviously, Perlman's a lot more likable. And I think the scene that he's in in the group therapy session is really good. And he's really good in that. And you start to get some humanity from him. But I agree, he's there to minimise the losses to the airline. And Brillstein is there to maximise them. And yet they both have the same effect on Max and Carla, which is to further alienate them from everybody around them and make them feel as if this crash has now put them in a different place from everyone and they no longer have any means of connecting with them because the other people don't get it. All right, can we talk a little bit about Laura and and, uh, Isabella Rossellini? I'll read you guys this. Uh, Peter Weir said, Interestingly, the women came from two Latin cultures, which seem to be something that Max is drawn to in some subliminal way. It's implied that his wife, Laura, is Italian and that Carla is Puerto Rican. And he also said, I didn't want English and the command of language to be the first choice of communicating between these two people. I think that that's what he's just said there is true. I think mostly how these two people communicate with each other is with facial expressions and physical gestures. I think that Isabella Rossellini kind of has this European feistiness and it's very physical. She has a physical vocation, ballet. I feel like uh, Isabella Rossellini is so thoroughly overshadowed Mm. by everybody else in this movie that her role is almost becomes insignificant to Mm. me while I'm watching it. Certainly her scenes are mostly far less interesting than the rest of what's going on in the film. And I think she generally is interesting when she's cast. She's one of those very elusive... she does a really perfectly acceptable job. It's just, I don't care. Yeah, I agree. I think Rossellini's Laura is kind of a thankless role. I think we can deduce that the uh, the crash is what's suddenly broken this marriage up. I think that that uh, Laura is really struggling to get her husband back. Mm. Uh, I think she desperately wants him back. 
there's that great scene where they our son is innocent max do you want to crash our marriage okay but don't hurt our son i'm not scared to end our marriage neither am i yeah keep on going And then she slams the door and you know she's she does not ready to give it up. She's yeah. desperate not to give it up. But she's not gonna give him that. You know, she... And that and that moment feels so real. We've all been in relationships where there's that and you're just like, No, fuck you, no, fuck you kind of thing. Yeah. And and it, there is that um yeah, combative nature to like who's gonna give in first. Richard Kelly described this film as an existentialist suspense film. And on that note I'd like to know what you guys or what what role you think God plays in the film. He yeah. certainly mentioned a few times. God plays a huge role in the movie, really. But is this film an atheistic film, or is it a spiritual film? Vincent Camby in the New York Times wrote that at times Max suggests a Christ figure, and at other times a dropout from life. Mm. So you could read it either way there. Um, at one point he goes to the top of the movie and he, you think maybe he thinks he can fly. Maybe he thinks he's that invincible. And there's, of course, that conversation where Carla says... You must think that I'm very stupid. No, I'm not lying. I can't explain it, but you're safe with me. So so what are you telling me? There's no God, but there's you? There's a lot of God stuff in there. And the waitress, her name is Faith. I we think have. that could have been omitted, like, straight away. Yeah, yes. that, that was, that, that was another it. sledgehammer. That. It feels a little too overt in a film that is very rich in ambiguity, and so it's almost yeah. a shame that it's there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, obviously, we have the recreation of the Heronius Bosch painting. Painting done in 1500, just because you may not know it, the painting done in 1500 called Ascent of the Blessed or Ascent into the Empyrean, which yeah. was part of a series called Visions of the Hereafter. Where's this, where's this painting? This is recreated in the final scene. We'll see if we can get a link yeah. at the bottom of the, for the show. Yeah, uh, this is recreated in the final scene where he's walking towards the light in the fuselage of the plane. Right, okay. And that's the big kind of feature of this painting is that somebody's being bed- led towards the light by yeah. these yeah. angels. The fuselage kind of posits for a tunnel leading to a shaft of white light, which is, I guess, how a lot of people have described the near-death experience. Mm. And this painting has been um, interpreted to, to be a recreation of that experience. Well, I've got a quote that says, near-death experience researcher. So that's his job. Branch yeah. out, mate. He'd be great at dinner parties. <laughs> uh, Sam Parnia wrote that the painting resembles imagery typically associated with the near-death experience, in particular angels ex- escorting people down a tunnel of white light. He had a subject in particular write to him specifically referencing the painting, saying that it very much resembled what he saw during his near-death experience. I mean, Max is constantly pointing out the absurdity of a belief in God. And Carla, because of her belief in God, needs to work out why it happened. Mm. Because everything happens for a reason if God's watching over you. He's a very destructive force on a lot of these characters. The belief Mm. in him is destructive. I think, like, yeah, and it's it's obvious that, you know, Carla's deeply religious and it's... I think it's really interesting to watch people's faith get tested after trauma. Like, I think it speaks to how blind... Faith can be when Carla says, You and me forever. But I still believe in him. The fact that her child is taken away by design in her eyes, but that she can still accept God is staggering to me. Um, but I think it's really interesting to have that juxtaposition of those two characters. And I love the line that people don't. People don't so much believe in God as if they, they choose not to believe in nothing. That is such a poignant moment the fact that he says that in a church right next to him and the fact that he like scoffs the moment he's in the church and he looks around is so great if you had to describe the relationship between max and carla everybody that is in this movie max is emotionally detached from and then you get carla who's a little bit different for him um, very different. Yeah, very different. But, but, you know, you see him carrying the baby with the little boy. He wants nothing to do with this little boy at any point during the movie, really. I wouldn't either. That little boy's annoying. <laughs> he is even more obnoxious in the novel. You well, get back to San Francisco, he can't relate to his wife or his son. He's dismissive of the psychologist. He hates the lawyer. Um, but then Carla still needs something. She still needs to be saved. And so I guess Max sees himself in that kind of role. And so that's what I think the relationship is based on. It gives him an imperative. Mm. Um, I, I tried to... I mean, look, I think it's a, a fantastically interesting and rich relationship. 
between these two people and really unusual. I think it's too heavy to be called a friendship, but it's too informal um, to be called a doctor-patient <clears throat> relationship, although it does feel like that. Um, it's as intimate and as profound as a spousal relationship, but it's also mostly sexless. There's an unhealthy dependency on both sides. What do you mean mostly sexless? Well, there's that scene where uh, they kiss, and there is a there is a, 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 a I guess a flirty quality to it. There's a sense that these characters could go down that road. That's why I'm glad the movie didn't go down that road because yeah. it would feel secondary and therefore unnecessary. Max won't admit he has a problem, and Carla can't deny she has a problem, and I think that's kind of interesting. Mm. I think at times it's almost a paternal relationship. It's a good point. That also ties into the God thing, like the God thing being the father um, and that sort of element. I think, but that, but they're both are helping each other in a pretty profound way. Max obviously cares very deeply for her um, and the car crash brick wall scene is obviously the peak of that. I think there are some slight comparisons to the Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson relationship in Lost in Translation in that they both share something special. For them, it was like Tokyo in Japan, and then for these two, it's um, trauma. Um, I think it's a, a super interesting relationship. I'm glad that they didn't end up banging, because that would just feel... Do, do they in the They book? do. In the book, are oh, they? Go. Yeah, at the very end. I think, yeah, again, I, I think it would have been lost in this time format of a film. I, I think it would just feel cheap. Yeah, and I don't think we would forgive Max um, for Laura. No. I think it would be harder to forgive him if it if it went down that road in the film. Do you think Do you think Rosie, uh, um, Rosie Perez's performance? Did you find? I think it's really well acted. Um, at times, do you find her a little bit annoying? I've always found Rosie Perez annoying. I think she was great in White Men Can't Jump. I love White Men Can't Jump. It was a great movie. I saw it at the cinemas when it came out. But she's so grating. Her her voice is awful in every movie except for this one in this movie she's got depth and she does a brilliant job as well yeah do you know if this performance had been wrong the brick wall scene would have been a disaster well you would have wanted her to go through the window and hit the wall you need need to believe this woman is so critically affected by what's Mm. happened to her that nothing short of slamming into a brick wall is going to shake her out of it uh, and she does. You do feel her grief. It's so excessive. And that panic attack in the car before that scene mm. is so powerful. I want to tell you something that nobody knows. Do you remember? Just when we touched the ground and it was like we were going to land, okay? Yeah. What? I had him in my lap. I looked out the road and and I thought we were gonna be safe and the wheels bumped in. I opened my arms. I was safe in my boat, but he wasn't. Oh, I see. So it was your fault? Hmm? It wasn't the accident? I wasn't holding him. You killed your baby. Yes. And the lawyer. Brillstein? I didn't tell him the truth, Manny. Want I, I understand, money so you're also a liar, huh? Yes! Yes, I lied! I lied to Father Canty! I, I lied oh. in the confession! No, I lied to the whole church, to everybody! Uh, oh, my God! Oh, my God, oh, my God! Carly, it's not your fault. I think the brick wall scene is one of the best scenes in a film ever for me. It's one of personally just some a scene that I just think is just so powerful. I'm really fascinated by the idea that uh, someone could per- could perpetrate an extreme act of violence out of love, and that violence could be restorative, that it could be healing. In this bubble, okay? Now this is your chance to hold on tight, to save them, okay? The last scene of Mad Max, where he puts that, you know, her, her lungs are filling up with blood, and so he, he stabs her to drain the lungs uh, of that blood. 
I find that scene beautiful. I think that, that there's something extraordinary about that. It's violent and it's it's damaging, and yet at the same time it's necessary and it's healing. It wouldn't have worked without Rosie Perez being as good as she is and believing that you know she needs something below the level of language to help her. That you know talking it out hour after hour, no matter what is said, how many times it's said, is not going to help her. She needs, and, and the scene has a real reverence for the power of force and of impact. You know, it, it's like he knows that the only thing will help her is if she feels what that kind of crash means and the impact of it. She needs to be reminded that she was totally helpless and totally vulnerable to it. That no matter how tightly she had gripped, there was no way that she could save her baby. I love that when we when we come up from that scene and she's got this look of contentment on her face, we get it. Nobody else in the story does. This scene is the kind of centrepiece of the movie. It's the climax of the movie. The whole scene is the culmination of Max's theme throughout the movie, this invincibility that he thinks he has. Um, but he takes this fearlessness and this feeling of invincibility and he passes this on to Carla in some way by telling by healing her problem, uh, which is that she blames herself. And it's only once she's healed that she realises that Max is in worse shape than she was. Yeah. She doesn't know it until then. No. She's well enough to know it after the crash. That's right. But as soon as she's healed, then he becomes... Uh, vulnerable. Vulnerable again. Invincible. Really <laughs> I was going to say invincible. He doesn't really. It's not until he's saved with the strawberry. No, absolutely. But I think it's at that point where you, you kind of feel that, yeah, okay, whatever he did during this movie probably wouldn't have killed him. But after that car crash, that ends. He's seriously scarred up. He goes to hospital and everything. I've got to disagree with you about you too. And I'm a big U2 fan, but I, I did not like the use of that music in this scene. I think it dates the movie. And there's a few things in this movie that have already dated it. So that just added to it. I think they should have looked for something else. Even though, yeah, the, the in theory, this scene should work with a piece of music like Where the Streets Have No Name. But for me, while it worked... It felt dated. It felt early nineties. Well, see, the music, Even the music itself isn't dated. The no. music itself is just using, you know, standard instrumentation. There's no electronic score or anything to put it in a, in a particular era. I think probably it feels dated to you because you know the work of you two quite well, and it, you connotate it with a certain period of time. I don't know them. That's true. I think it's quite poignant as well that it's like the streets have no name, and you're not told the name of the street. Yeah, that's very poignant. <laughs> very poignant. Um, I think it's such a dark moment as well. Um, both of them essentially could have died and it shows the extent of Max's mental condition that he goes that far. Um, it's also profoundly beautiful and the image of the red toolbox flying through the windscreen is quite haunting. Yeah, It's also strange when you see the crumpled toolbox on the ground in front of the wall in the aftermath of the crash that it almost does take on a human quality and I, I think that speaks so strongly to the strength of weird direction that you feel this way like it's a complete inanimate object and you're like seeing it crumpled makes you feel strange almost like you, you almost you know supplement the baby being in that place you absolutely do and i think a lot of it has also to do with rosie perez's performance totally and i and, and, I, and that, I, that red toolbox becomes humanized in that scene yeah <laughs> and i and i like i i've all said as well like i almost forgive the u2 song being used too because of it we should say that rosie perez was oscar nominated for this uh film mm. it was perhaps the only real kind of you know attention the film got um Anna Paquin won that year for The Piano. The other nominees were Holly Hunter for The Firm, Winona Ryder, The Age of Innocence, Emma Thompson, In the Name of the Father. So, I mean, you know, very, very strong contenders. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I almost... I haven't really seen... Actually, I haven't seen The Piano, so I can't say. Apparently, she's great in it. But, Especially, I think, what, what, was she 13 years old? Yeah, youngest at the time. Yeah. If she'd by some miracle managed to hang on to that red toolbox, that would have been the biggest backfire in history. <laughs> so I think, I think... The idea yeah. that Carla could have saved her baby, that is a myth busted. <laughs> Why does Carla feel that ending the relationship with Max is the right thing to do? Do you think that it's strictly because Laura's asked her to? 
or do you think it's because she does know that she's not helping him? Yeah, I think there's a bit of Carla helping out Laura after their conversation. I think Carla really absorbs the stress that Laura's under and is given a strong dose of perspective in this in that moment. Um, I also think Carla is doing it for herself too, on some level, because she can't live in the you know ghost world anymore. Um, I think that for some reason, Carla, for Max, she's caught up in whatever it is that is making him feel <laughs> uh, invulnerable. She's caught up in his psychological problem, in his altered state of consciousness. Mm. And, and I think she does know, once she's you know survived the car crash and is feeling better... Uh, that she can't possibly um, pursue a friendship with him or any kind of relationship with with him because she is one of the factors that is keeping him unwell. And he does need to return to his family, to his son, and to continuity. He needs to pull a little bit out of the sensual world. I mean, it's a very it would be very enticing to suddenly feel the wind on your face and, and all of this stuff that he's going through. And even Laura at one point says, let me be a part of it. But he can't. He says to her, you can't. You know, because he doesn't even... He didn't have any control over it. It's sort of something that happened to him in the crash. So I think it's a, I think it's a sacrifice. It's like that thing where you, in a thing of trauma, you own your grief a lot. Like, it's yours. You become possessive of it. This is my thing. And that happens so much no matter what it is. Like, like that idea of, like, you have no idea what I'm going through. Um, and I don't want you to know what I'm going through in a way because... It's mine. It's a personable, personal sort of experience. I don't think... I think the film certainly kind of framed it by placing it so close, those two scenes so close to one another. When Laura talks to Carla and says that... Maybe this wonderful friendship that you have might have helped you. But it hasn't helped Max. Maybe our marriage is over. But I have a son. And I want him to have a father. And so then the next scene, I think, is her bringing him a box of Whitman sampler chocolates at the <laughs> hospital to, you know, essentially break up this relationship. So I think it certainly suggested it in the framing of where these scenes were in the film. But I think it was mostly because Carla had been saved that she was even able to do that. And she had to care enough about Max to be able to do that. So she does it for Laura, but she does it for Max. Yep, Mostly, and I think, I think it's p- the p- the best performance moment for Rosie Perez and Jeff Bridges that scene. I want you to go home, Max. I want you to live again. We're going to make it, Max. Yes, <laughs> I'm not a ghost anymore. There's a boy alone up there. What? I can't get back. Yes, you can. You thought that was the best actor. For both the best moment and the best moment between two actors, it, the scenes are real two-hander. See, I really enjoy the scenes where Jeff Bridges is detached. I I, I enjoy watching him in this movie, not caring about what what other people are going through. I think it's a really great performance of exactly what you were just talking about, where you do want to own your own grief and uh, you're going through something that not many people can understand. But my favourite performance scene of the movie is the one where he goes to tell Jeff's wife. I knew it. I just knew it right away. Oh, God. We were stupid. Yeah. We lived like jerks. Yeah. We were nagging. We wished. He loved you. because of that actress she has she's a few fantastic great um the other moment that i love is where they're all at that dinner table i think it might yeah. be for thanksgiving yeah and he notices that she's not with them yeah and he's not with them and they see each other and they connect in that moment and there's something beautiful about that that, moment. that that's my favorite acted scene in the film because it's so nuanced and it's just so like it's just done with a look and i, like, I find that so powerful and so strong i think that speaks to the quality of the acting in the movie that we have three separate favourite scenes of acting in this movie. And also the quality of the writing. Yeah. Um, that so much of the most powerful moments are unsaid. They're done in actions and expressions. Glances. Yeah. And it's just really beautiful and refreshing. 
for an American film to not rely so exclusively on dialogue. This is the first film that I have seen of Jeff Bridges in the lead where I haven't seen him as the dude from the, like Big Lebowski. Like it's so because I know that came a few, a few years after it, but like I was just it's so strange for me to like see him in a serious role. Yeah. Like because of that film. I really like the uh, the fact that we see the aftermath of the crash in the opening, and we see the crash itself at the end. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you guys about the strawberry. Because he's been eating strawberries throughout the whole film. This is my yeah. This and is my like, slight issue with it, and I'm sure it's not. The way the film did it, I almost thought that Laura panicked and he started to choke on it. But when I read in the novel, he actually okay, does have an reaction, allergic reaction. Well, the reason for this, I believe, is that exactly what I said about the car crash scene and the you know why Carla lets him go because he's now saved Carla. And he has no reason to have this fearlessness, to have this invincibility. And so be, he becomes mortal again. But so you're saying, are you saying there's a supernatural element to him? Mm, not necessarily. I'm saying that there might even be some kind of psychosomatic element to it, where because he believes that he is invincible, he is invincible. And as soon as he has no purpose for that, because he saved the one person that he really cared about, then it leaves his body. When you say psychosomatic, are you saying that he can start fires with his thoughts? I'm saying that he believes... <laughs> Sorry, that's Talladega Nights reference. He can convince himself out of an allergic reaction to yeah. a fruit. There are those recorded cases of mind over matter where people have this enormous burst of strength in moments of crisis. Mothers lift the car off their baby. Yep, yep. That's, the, that's the best... Um, yeah, but the best example of that. And yeah, I, I, that's what I put it down to. I, I was like, okay, well, they must. he must have just been able to physically change his makeup in that point at some point. But yeah, I, I, it, did, it was a moment of suspension of disbelief. I think the perfect word for it, though, is fearless, because it really gives you no answers. The way we intercut between the, uh, the crash and Max choking, or having his reaction, I think is extraordinary and mm. and really emotional and moving it cuts between the crash which is it is full of this so you know, violent rip roaring movement and energy uh, and then we have yeah. <laughs> and then we have you know Laura obviously tr- trying to uh, resuscitate Max and then we also have these third set of images which are where the fuselage or the air ca- cabin you know, posits as that time of light that is reminiscent of the Bosch painting, which is also reminiscent again of a of a spiritual element to this film that Max is going towards the the white light. I think also at that point you feel like because he's framed like that and the painting is a normal person, a human being being taken by angels, it brings him back down to that level of humanity Ooh. where instead of flying up above everything on top of this building he is simply human being led into this light by the angels. So therefore he loses his spirituality. And that beautiful cut where he's walking towards the bright light and then he just turns and then he comes back and of course the first words he says are... No. No, neither do I. I, I. I was too happy that he didn't to say that I think he should have. Maybe he should have intellectually. Norm, normal, you know, sardonic kind of Cameron would have really enjoyed him dying in that moment, but that whole coalescing of that, those cutbacks to the crash, to what's going on with him having that reaction or choking or whatever it is, it brought to the fore, like, how much I cared about Jeff Bridges. Like, in my head, I was like, no, no. And I'm never, like, like most of the time, I'm like, kill him. <laughs> like, I just, like... Kill I'm, them all. Yeah, because, it, you know, and, and it does, and it's 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 almost a bolder move, I think, to, to have him kept alive, which is very strange for a Hollywood film to say that. Like, yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it's fantastic. I think Laura particularly is fantastic in that moment, and Rossellini's performance is great. Yeah, that's a, that's a really strong scene for Isabella Rossellini. 
she's one of these actresses like Angelica Houston where it's like oh my god there she is you know it's almost like a sighting because they're, they're so rare and they pick their movies yeah. very infrequently she's also one of these actresses that when you're doing a podcast you want to mention the full name Isabella Rossellini so often yeah yeah I want to do it to the Macarena have you heard that before no <laughs> If, we, if that doesn't get edited out in the podcast, um, Cameron has made his note that it should be. Because um... that was a fucking train wreck. There's a piece of music over the top of this. Did you read anything about the Is music? Symphony number three? Yeah, it's the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. Did you write anything about it? Well, it just that powerful? Peter Weir wanted to use it. Uh, they said no. I think then whoever had the rights saw the film, loved it, and granted him permission. Well, it had only been released in English-speaking countries the year before. It had been written in 1976. Hmm. And it became a massive hit. It went to number six in the albums chart in the UK. Oh. Um, it was number one on the US Billboard classical music chart for 38 weeks. And Peter Weir has said that he's a huge fan of music. And that when he was in between films, he lives in Sydney, and he would just buy the world's great music, was his quote, and shut off. And so obviously he'd heard this music and he loved it. Uh, It became really popular, sold a million copies of this album. There's a whole bunch of things around this time. There was this piece of music which was used in Fearless, which has these spiritual kind of things going on. But there was also uh, the play Angels in America came out, and Vim Vender's Far Away So Close, which was a sequel to Wings of Desire, which was later remade into City of Angels in the US. So it was all of this stuff coming out that was symbolism of angels and spirituality in that period, 1992-93. Alright, well look, I've got something very exciting for you both. Um, Obviously this film was uh, based on the novel by Rafael Iglesias. He also uh, adapted the screenplay. He's written several notable screenplays, including Death and the Maiden for Roman Polanski, Uh, From Hell and the American version of Dark Water. The book was first published in April of 1993, six months before the film was released. He did the adaptation of From Hell? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. And uh, just quickly, did he send originally the screenplay or the book? Because I thought he sent the book to Weinstein and Rosenberg while he was working on the screenplay. Oh, I'm not sure. Right, okay. But whatever he sent them, they loved it. But I thought he sent the book. Anyway, I um I emailed him, and he was generous enough to respond and answer a couple of the questions I had, so I'd like to read them out to you. I asked him, did writing the novel and screenplay help you to overcome your fear of flying, as I read that it did Peter Weir? And he wrote, yes, my neurotic fear of flying was dissipated by writing the novel, and then consolidated by my work on the movie. I wanted to write about how people, and a modern culture in particular, deals with the reality of death. I chose a plane crash to illustrate contemporary attitudes and responses because it's a nearly perfect metaphor for our fear of death. The suddenness of its appearance while doing something as common and ordinary as a bus ride, that planes are often a diverse boatload of humanity, and that a plane crash illustrates in the clearest possible way the great levelling of death, that it comes to each and every one of us. Fearless is a story about death in a way that most are not. Most stories quickly move from death into portraying another kind of life after death, Whereas our true experience of death is that it is the end of life, and our fear of that makes us try to make sense of death in any way we can, although in a profound emotional sense we never can, other than to accept that death is an integral part of life, a necessary part over which we have no control. I then asked him if he'd seen the movie recently, and what his thoughts and impressions were today. He said, I watched Fearless about nine months ago for the first time in well over 15 years. Although I think only an idiot could be 100% happy with anything one has written, I am probably as close to idiocy about Fearless as I'm ever likely to be. (laughs) Working with Peter, and indeed with everyone else on the movie, was challenging, encouraging, moving and gratifying. Necessarily, there were differences between my view and Peter's view of the post-traumatic syndrome Max experiences, and of the meaning of death itself, particularly about death. Indeed, I'm sure there were differences of opinion about those subjects amongst everyone who worked on the movie. That diversity is why I wrote in so many different kinds of reactions to how people think and feel about death, from the lawyer's attempt to put a monetary value, the therapist's need to see it as a feeling to work through, and of course Carla's need to give it a specific purpose, some kind of judgement. Some of the differences between Peter's feelings, a desire to make the movie's spirituality a little too explicit and specific to Christian imagery, continue to jar me a little. But Peter, very respectfully 
did not alter what I cared about most, namely the path Max walks. From neurotic and unreasonable fear of death, to a neurotic and unreasonable lack of fear, and finally to a humble and human need to be rescued himself back to the natural state of being, which is to be alive at once joyfully and fearfully, an understanding that what makes our time on Earth count is that it ends. For a director to rigorously stick to that message, not to pander with sentimentality about his hero or death itself, was extraordinary, and I remain pleased and a little astonished that we made a mainstream movie about how people deal with the fact that one day they will leave behind everything they know, and everyone they know, for something they know nothing about. On the very, very, very remote chance he's listening, thank you so much, um, Rafael Iglesias, for giving this podcast such an extraordinary exclusive. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. That's such a great insight, and obviously first-hand. Did I shock you there, Cameron? You did. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how he got his email. And I, I hope we've uh, done some justice talking about the movie as well. So I read the, uh, I read the novel, Fearless, absolutely loved it. He's a marvellous writer. Now, now that he's responded, I want to just completely show my praise for the script on every single level. <laughs> <laughs> no, the script is great, and that's why I said I feel like Don't pander. Don't this pander. is uh, mostly his drive yeah. in this movie. It's certainly his like. vision. Yeah. yeah. You know, all of the, the way the film looks and everything, you can put down to Peter Weir. Uh, and, and Peter and Weir is a beautiful filmmaker, yes. and you know he he's uh, he's not, I guess, someone who oh that's a Peter Weir film in the same way that you yeah. can tell a Kubrick or a you know Lars von Trier movie. But certainly yeah. Iglesias, the story that you know propels this movie forward, the story of Max yeah. is it feels like it is so strong, so strongly written. So just quickly, some of the differences between the novel and the film: uh, Max is actually mugged. You know that part where he crosses the street, the highway? Mm-hmm. He gets mugged, and the uh, the mugger knives him, but he knives him between his shoulder and chest, so it's kind of like he miraculously doesn't get stabbed, which further uh, you know, cements the idea that he's invulnerable. But it's also like that religious symbolism like that Christ gets speared in the side. Ah, yeah, well. yeah. Um, Max has sex with his old girlfriend, Alison, which I think we've discussed. Mm-hmm. In the uh, book, Was Carla's. She in the novel? Uh, I think there may have been mention of that. Yeah, in the novel, Carla's husband Manny is having an affair, which is why Carla leaves him. Yeah, I read that one. And um, the book actually kind of switches in chapters between Max and Carla. They don't actually meet for three hundred pages. And the most peculiar <laughs> moment in the book, which I think thankfully wasn't carried over to the film, was when they finally have sex. The the way that that is initiated is that Carla breastfeeds Max. Bitty. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually works in a very provocative way in the novel, but I think would have probably been a bit too much for for mainstream audiences to consume. That would have been the second podcast in a row with a kinky sex scene. (laughs) So, Damien, can you talk to us a little bit about the release or reception (laughs) of the film? Sure. The uh, film, Fearless was opened uh, in the US on October 15, 1993. It was in limited release for the first two weeks, first six and then eight screens. But it did have the second highest and then the highest per screen gross figures. So in these two weekends, it took $300,000. It wasn't until the third week that it went a little wider, 124 screens. And then the fourth and fifth weeks, 749 screens. And I think that's as wide as it got. It finished with $7 million, which would have been a disappointment, I guess, considering the way that the film was marketed. It's kind of a, kind of an Academy Award prestige feature across mainstream cinema experience. And it didn't really catch on either way, so it would have been a disappointment. Um, it opened alongside some pretty decent box office performers, and when I say these titles, you're just going to think, thank God we've moved on from these movies. The Beverly Hillbillies and Cool Runnings and Demolition Man. God, they're so of their time, it scares Which me. Which sound awful, don't they? In the fourth week of its release, Remains of the Day came out. I love that movie. And that would have been a big film to steal a lot of the audience for, mm. Fearless. The next week, The Piano came out. And uh, also there were box office hits, Three Musketeers and Carlito's Way. And then a few days after that, Mrs. Doubtfire came out and made a, I think it's called a shitload of money. And then a few weeks after that, Schindler's List came out, and that was pretty much all of the award buzz around Fearless went away because Schindler's List came out. So the films that were nominated for Best Picture were The Fugitive, $183 million, 
Schindler's List, $96 million, The Piano, $40 million, In the Name of the Father, $25 million, and Remains of the Day, $23 million. So they all far higher than Fearless, $7 million. So the box office reception was pretty poor. And what about Critically? Critically, it was very good. So it got uh, it, from 35 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it holds an 86% rating. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave it three out of four stars, said Fearless is eerily convincing in its portrait of the last moments of a flight and its aftermath. Well, there is an aftermath. Not everyone is killed, and the man who is so serene is one of the survivors. Bridges, who despite his Oscar nominations has never really been recognised for, for his subtle depth of acting, is a good choice for the role of Max. He plays him matter-of-factly. Vincent Camby of the New York Times called it a serious, confidently made film that's as singular and remote as its lead character. Todd McCarthy of Variety said that Fearless is beautifully made in all respects, but that it had pretension in its symbolism. Jonathan Rosenbaum for the Chicago Reader didn't like the movie, giving it one star, which is the same rating he gave to Demolition Man in the same issue. His issue was not with the movie itself as it is presented on screen, but rather the lack of comparison to the time before the plane crash. That was his big issue. Rosenbaum wrote of the car crash scene. In setting up the rudiments of this situation, the film can't be faulted, at least on the level of its script, its direction, or its performances. Bridges and Perez give uncharacteristic, highly arresting portraits of people in a sustained state of shock. But as soon as I try to imagine Max working at his job and living with his family before the accident, I draw an utter blank. For all practical purposes, the pre-accident Max can't be said to exist, even though other characters, most notably his wife, constantly allude to him in the past as if he did. We're told various things about his past, but are given no concrete evidence of who he was. And slowly but surely, this void undermines everything else in the film that the script, the actors, and the direction have taken such pains to establish. I know at the test screening, Jeff Bridges said to Peter Weir, it's like you put acid in the popcorn. Um, the Washington Post did two separate reviews of Fearless. There was one by Hal Hinson, and he called it uh, Peter Weir's haunting meditation on the aftershocks of trauma, which is probably the closest description to what I think of the movie. Hinson in the Washington Post was one of the few people to not only say that Jeff Bridges was amazing, but that Rosie Perez matched him. Do you think because people were so surprised by Rosie Perez that Jeff Bridges was overlooked? In these contemporary reviews, he wasn't overlooked. Looking back, I wonder if Rosie Perez was part of the reason that audiences didn't go to the movie. Because yeah. until you see her in this movie, you don't know that she's capable of this. So yeah. you would dismiss the movie. We had seen her in a couple of movies, but did a screen test with her, and that's how he cast her. Okay, guys, this is the part of the show where I play Harissa's thoughts on the movie. I just have to preface this by saying that the last thing he says is, I don't know, because he says it quietly. All right, here goes. Lay it on me. What did you think of the movie? Um, yeah, I thought the movie was well done. There were lots of bits in the parts of the movie which I absolutely love. I liked the bit where he, he helped all those people and then he wanted to, you know, disappear as well. And I thought a lot of the scenes were very um, powerful and, and made a great impact on me. Like the car accident scene and the scene where, you know, he sort of got to Carla. Do you know Carla? Yeah, I know Carla. <laughs> Everybody tried their very best to talk to Carla and to try and make her open up. But he was the one, only one that got through to her, you know? So I thought that was really, really special. What do you think his problem was? I think he was suffering from PTSD. In what sense? Um, in a sense that he was very... Um, I don't know. <laughs> he was a lot more sure of himself this, this month. It <laughs> sounds like you've coached him on how to do a film review. He's getting more and more confident. <laughs> okay, second treat for you both. It is time for the Fearless Quiz. Did you give him the hard questions this yeah, time? I did. I did. Sorry, just see your first answer. So you might have to give your first question to Cameron. Great, so now you're going to be smug when I get this wrong as well. So Cameron, what was the film's USA working title? No idea. Joyride. Glad that didn't go. That was also the USA release title for the film that was released here is Roadkill, the one starring Paul Walker and Lili Sobieski. Good movie. Yeah, underrated film. I think that's next month's movie. Damien. Rosie Perez recently received rave reviews for her role in a Broadway show called Fish in the Dark, which was written and co-starred which of our favourite comedians? Fish in the Dark, that was Larry David. Ooh, okay. Zero for Cameron, one for Damien. <laughs> Cameron's not looking very happy. I'm not. Cameron, who is Wendy Stites? Is that the name of the friend that he sees? 
that's the visual consultant on Fearless. She's visual consultant on all of Peter Weir's films, and she's also his wife. Okay, that's a bullshit fucking question. Oh, how dare you. True or false, Damien? Pilots who flew over the set of the opening scene of Fearless radioed it in, believing that it was an actual plane crash. Uh, I'm going to say false. True. Oh. 50%, you got it wrong. <laughs> okay, and here's Ellen, yours. Here's your chance. <laughs> Here it comes. Oh, I don't think I've got one out of all of these quizzes. Here's your chance to even the score and not be the reigning loser of the podcast. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. Production designer John Studdard hired a green thumb to plant and raise a crop of corn for the opening sequence. True. Oh, he's right. That's true. <laughs> That's the one thing I looked at on the IMDb trivia page. <laughs> so you're, this is your chance to actually win. He's always given an out, isn't he? <laughs> Free kick Hawthorne. What other film about a plane crash came out the year before and starred Dustin Hoffman? You know, I thought... This question was going to be what other film about a plane crash came out that year and it would have been easy because it would have been alive. A film coming out the same, the year before, starring Dustin Hoffman. Don't reinstate the question to give yourself more time. Okay. So I have to pass. It also had Gina Davis. A League of Their Own didn't have a plane crash. (laughs) Although Madonna's performance in it. The film was in Australia, it was called Accidental Hero. Here it was called Hero. Oh. And it's where he plays a con artist, he survives a plane crash. I've He's heard of it. I don't know if hero. I've ever seen it. Yeah. yeah. Alright, so very well done, guys. That was a draw. Alright, now. No, I won. Alright, now, out of, out of five. Just reiterating, that was a draw. <laughs> out of five, Damien. Uh, I give it a four and a half. Uh, four. Five. Five? Yeah, this is the first. He's upgraded. Point. Yeah, I think I, I went five for the thing and. Four and a half for Don't Look Now. Yeah. yeah. I think I gave five for the thing, four for Don't Look Now, and four for this. And that's all we have this month for Celluloid Junkies. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you'll do it again next month. For Halloween, we're going to be looking at John Landis' 1981 American horror comedy An American Werewolf in London. So we're going to sink our teeth into that one. Uh, until then, you have a nice life, and we'll see you later. See you next month. Well, firstly, it was material that I'd never dealt with before. Yet in some strange way, it seemed to cross territory of a number of my films it promised to be a great adventure because I was going to be dealing with some of the grand themes of life and the terrible danger and death that's right Mm. yeah love fear death grief uh, how to live and so on I thought Mm. my god if I if I fail creatively it will be an enormous crash (laughs) so so you know junkie